It was around the year 1970 when a missionary I know uh, hiked up a river for many hours in a northern part of Sulawesi, uh, Indonesia, uh, to visit a group known as the Saluan people. Uh, He was young and recently married. He and his wife felt called to go overseas uh, to the mission field to share the good news about Jesus Christ. However, after much effort trying to get these people to allow them to live there in their village, they were denied and they had to come back down the river. Fast forward maybe 15 to 20 years later, and in that village, something terrible happened. A woman in the village was, was sexually assaulted, and the man, was, the man, the culprit, was killed as a punishment by the chief according to their culture, according to their law. Though it was right and just according to their customs, the Indonesian government saw that as murder. And so this man, this chief, was brought into a local jail and and held there as punishment. Fast forward to 2017 when I actually met this missionary, um, and we were on a month-long trip to Indonesia. He was living in Luwuk, the town where the jail was, Uh, translating the Bible into one of the indigenous languages. And when I asked him about his ministry, he said that he regularly visits a man in jail to teach him the Bible. And he explained that a local jail where a a pastor friend of his uh, taught people about Jesus, that's where he met this guy. And the pastor met this man um, who spoke a strange language uh, that the locals didn't speak, and asked this missionary, because his, his specialization was in language, to see if he can speak that language. He said he would never forget the first time he met this man. The man looked at him, the missionary, and asked him in the Saluan language, weren't you the man that came and visited us 40 years ago? He was stunned. The chief explained that he was just a young boy at the time, but he clearly remembers a white man and white woman came to the village, made a hike that no one else had made before. And the missionary from that point on started with creation in Genesis and began to teach this chief about the Bible. And at that time in 2017, he had gone from Genesis and all these stories all the way leading up to the moment where Jesus was crucified on the cross and he was so excited to share with him the gospel. It had been months leading up to this point. The chief was uh, due to get out of jail soon, be released, and he asked the missionary to come and teach the whole village the stories he'd been learning. The missionary, he said with a huge smile on his face that he had no idea that God would use that initial failed attempt at living in the tribe in this manner. It took 50 years, but now they had an opening into that village through the chief of the village, Not from the bottom up, but the chief was going to invite him as a guest to come. God did an amazing work and had a plan that no one knew was unfolding. I share this story with you because it is an amazing testimony to God's sovereign plan, to know that he is in control and how he masterfully used all of these events and things to accomplish his mission. In the U.S., I think we rarely think outside of our immediate context, our immediate lives, the lives of our friends and family. 
And for us to, to look at and be reminded that God and his activity is all over the world, not just here with us. That he's working in all nations to accomplish his mission. That is something that can easily slip by our minds. In Indonesia, God used a child's memory of a failed attempt at engaging an unreached people group in 1970, then a horrific event that led to a killing that led to jail time 20 years later, and somehow all of this culminated into reuniting with that child 50 years later to return with the gospel to that very same village. This story is amazing because we can't, we can't see five minutes into the future let alone 50 years with clarity. We're in awe of a God who is just outside of time and is accomplishing his purposes and his mission at such a grand scale that we have trouble like, comprehending how did all this fit together? How did this happen? But God, he's been from the very beginning working and weaving his plan and his mission into the fabric of human history. So what we're seeking to do today is to see that God and his plans are not aimless and without a purpose, but it's precise and intentional. God's plans have not changed, but remains the same from Genesis to Revelation. God has always been a missional God. He's always had in mind the salvation of all nations. And what is incredible is that this God invites us to join him in his mission to save from all nations those that would repent from their sin and believe in him. When believers of Jesus choose to be obedient to his call and his mission, we get to be part of something that has been in the works for thousands of years. And so today, we'll trace from Genesis to Revelation what God's mission is and see how we can join his mission today. So I'm just going to have the points up here. Uh, You can look at from the OT, from the Old Testament, we'll look at blessing and salvation of all nations, and how the New Testament talks about the gospel of the kingdom to all nations, and then today, joining the mission to all nations. It's a mission sermon. And so, to start off, we're going to be in the Old Testament, blessing and salvation of all nations. And, And this passage, I think, kind of starts us off in the right right place it's psalm 67 it says may god be gracious to us all oh, to us excuse me and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth your saving power among all nations and so we're going to fly through these passages that established israel as a nation and how god meant for his people israel to be the source of blessing and salvation to all nations So you're at Genesis 12, and as we start off our look there, we're at a point where Israel doesn't even exist as a nation, right? This is right at the beginning. And God, he calls Abram out of his country, his family, basically from everything that makes up his identity and says, come and go to a place I'm going to show you. And gives him this promise. Read verse 1 through 3 with me. It says, now the Lord, now Yahweh said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God, he separates Abram from any outside influence and promises him that he would have so many descendants that they would, became, they would, they would become a great nation. And the key here is to notice that the final part, it says, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So yes, I'm calling you a single person out and making you into a great nation, but through you, every other family in the whole earth shall be blessed. Now there's a problem. If you're familiar with the story, it's that Abram and Sarai, his wife, could not have children until they were 100 years old, until Abram was 100. And until he was 100, they wrestled with trusting God because, I mean, we don't even know what it's like to be waiting that long and, and, and to know that they, they trusted God, they believed in his promise, and yet year after year, no child until Isaac was born. And Isaac was so deeply loved. I mean, just imagine, waited decades for this child, the promised child that would be the beginning of a great nation. And we're right back on schedule, right? The 100-year waiting period is gone, and they became a great nation, blessing to all families of the world. And then, so flip over to uh, chapter 22, okay? I'm going to have it here for you. But you can flip along and, and read with me. Isaac's born, and then God decides to test Abram, now, now renamed Abraham. He asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac as a burnt offering, which meant to burn to ash something and declare that only God can have this. I'm going to burn it up so only you can have it. Holy his is what you're declaring by giving a burnt offering. And so read from verse 10. This is moments before he's about to plunge the knife into Isaac. Then Abram reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of Yahweh called 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 to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of Yahweh it shall be provided. Keep going. And the angel of the Lord shall uh, call to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I shall surely bless you. Here's that blessing piece again. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is in the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God repeats the same promise to Abraham again, but more specific this time, saying that in your offspring shall all the nations be blessed. So this is at least 100 years removed since, since Abraham's life began, and yet he, he repeats the same promise. And you'll see that in Genesis 26, I'll have it up for you. You can keep flipping along if you want to. 26.4 verse 5, God repeats this again to Isaac, to remind him that God will not forget his promise and that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is verse 4 and 5 of chapter 26. He says to Isaac, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 
because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So the, the promise God gave to Abraham now is given to Isaac. It's becoming more specific. And God repeats this promise again to Isaac's son, Jacob. He has a dream one day of a ladder into heaven, and God reaffirms the promise again. This is Genesis 28, verses 13 through 14. And it says, And behold, the Lord Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. We seeing a pattern here? That his focus, God's focus, right from the beginning, before Israel was even a country, before it was even a nation, God had all the nations in mind through them. By now, many years have passed. So we've gone through Abraham and Isaac, and we've gone through three generations down from Abraham, and God tells Jacob his offspring will be as many as dust. There's so much dust. And again, all the families of the earth will be blessed through them. And Jacob eventually gets renamed Israel, and his 12 sons becomes the 12 tribes of Israel and becomes a great nation. And the only problem is, if you've been around church long enough, Israel knew that they'd been chosen by God to be blessed. But they forgot that last part, that they were meant to be a blessing to the rest of the world. And they forgot also that it was Abraham's obedience to God that gave this promise. So then they proceeded in their history to have a checkered a history of swinging back and forth from obeying God and complete abandonment of God to chase after other false gods of different countries around them. Yet, God is somehow still working his plan in the midst of all their disobedience and chaos. I guess in parallel, just imagine the, the 40 years, the 50 years after being turned away from that village. What was that time like? But somehow God was behind the scenes working all of these plans. And as we fast forward through this checkered history that Israel is going through with their disobedience, God is angry at Judah, the southern uh, part of Israel, chasing after false gods and angry with the nations around them that led them astray. And he talks about the judgment to come to Judah and all these nations that led them astray. But these prophets that we're going to look at, we're going to look at two of them, but they point to a day where still God's mission, aimed at all the nations, will be fulfilled, will be accomplished. Look at Zephaniah 3, 8 through 9. Therefore wait for me, declares Yahweh, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them, upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. Where is this blessing? Is it gone? In verse 9 it says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of Yahweh and serve him with one accord. So even the judgment is so that the nations would come and turn and serve him. God clearly has a mind in his mind a picture of the end game where a faithful and pure people from all nations gathering to serve God united in his kingdom. 
And this is exactly what the prophet Daniel speaks of. Daniel 7, verse 13 through 14. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Look, we just did like a giant sprint through a bunch of Old Testament passages, even through the prophets, and we see that in these sections that in the Old Testament, God has always had in mind in his crosshairs all nations to draw them to himself so that they may serve him. And God's desire for the faithful in all nations did not change and did not waver regardless of the circumstances. There's absolutely a kingdom that God has in mind to build. And it's, it is his mission to build it, which brings us to the second section, which is the New Testament. We're going to do a, a shorter sprint through the New Testament books here. And we're going to start with this slide on uh, Matthew twenty four fourteen, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony, again, to all nations, and then the end will come. So the Old Testament, we know, sets a stage for Jesus, the Messiah, to come. God himself in the flesh to be the blessing and the salvation to all nations because Israel couldn't be that. We talked about earlier that when Abram was commanded to sacrifice his son, it was just foreshadowing of how God was going to save the world because the language is he gave up his one and only son and God gives up his one and only son, Jesus. But this is still all part of the very same mission that God presented in all of the Old Testament. God desired all nations to gather around this Jesus Messiah, all those who turn away from their sin in repentance and believe that Jesus came and died in their place could by faith be brought into the kingdom. A kingdom that Daniel says will never break. Even Paul, he sees the consistency of the mission of God back in Abraham's day and with his day in the New Testament, preaching the forgiveness of sins through the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is Galatians 3, 8 and 9. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the non-Jews, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. This is Paul calling what, what, what God revealed to Abraham, saying, in you all the nations will be blessed. This is Paul saying that that was the gospel In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So it is not a revised second attempt. It's not all of a sudden the New Testament comes and it's a completely different plan, a completely different God. It's not like the Old Testament was a God of wrath and the New Testament is a God of love who accepts everything. No, it's the same consistent plan driving throughout the entirety of Scripture. And it's the masterful unfolding of God's precise plan of salvation to all nations. In Luke 24, Jesus, after he is crucified and buried, he resurrects from the grave and appears to two disciples traveling on the road. And they're saddened by the teacher's death. Because, yeah, they're waiting for this Messiah. If Israel wasn't going to be a blessing, it was supposed to be the Messiah. And the Messiah died. 
Was he really the Messiah? And they were, they were struggling with this. And Jesus appears to them, but veiled, so they don't know it's Jesus. And he points out that the Savior's suffering has been in the plans all along. It was in that masterful plan that God was, going, God, God was working through humanity. Now this message, though, of him, of the Savior, has to go out to all nations. He frames that again. This is Luke 24. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, which is the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to what? all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus shows them from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament as they they had it, revealing that this was the plan all along. Even in in Psalm 22, it's, it's a famous psalm where Jesus' suffering seems to have been prophesied. It remains consistent with what what was promised to Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. Just read a, a short section from it, Psalm 22, 1. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? That first part, my God, my God, have you forsaken me? That's the famous words that Jesus cried out while being crucified. Skip down to verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. If you've ever read the description of the crucifixion, this seems to be describing it to a T. Jump to 27. It says, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to Yahweh, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to Yahweh, and he rules over the nations. So even in this foretelling of, of Jesus, foretelling of the Savior's suffering that he's going to go through, even then, all the families of the nations shall worship is, is included in that promise. These passages, they speak with such certainty. It says, they shall worship you. All the families of the nations shall worship you. And they says that the kingship belongs to Yahweh and he rules over the nations. This is a confirmed reality for us. While these passages at the time, they, they spoke with certainty, we know now with, with other parts of Scripture that have been given to us, far more than, than Israel and, and the apostles did, we have Revelation, verse 7, or chapter 7, verse 9 through 12. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. 
This is a picture of the end game. God has kept the same mission from the beginning of the scriptures to the end. So many of the Old Testament passages and the New Testament packages, we just, look at, we just looked at a few of them, speak with certainty this coming day where the authority of Jesus as the Lamb of God is recognized, praised, and adored. And this certainty of all nations having representation, standing before the throne of Jesus, is the same certainty we have to join in the missions to all nations. Let me say that again. The certainty that all nations will be represented standing before the throne of Jesus is the same certainty that we can take as we join the missions to all the nations. So today, joining the mission to all nations. And what better place to start than the Great Commission? Okay? This is the third section of our... This is Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, he starts the Great Commission with the words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And it is with this authority that he commands his followers to go to all nations. Every people group. One author puts it like this. I'll put it up on there for you. He says, Jesus, he also has the authority over every government, every culture, every spiritual power, including those that oppose his gospel. His authority gives his followers both the right to take the gospel to every nation, whether they welcome it or not, and the obligation to take it to every nation, whether it is safe and convenient or not. He starts with this authority. And so the question becomes this, then what is your role, what is my role in contributing to this mission, to God's mission? That has not changed. To go to every nation. Are are the nations or other people groups, is that on our radar? Is it on yours? We saw that all throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, God places a high value on having all the nations be blessed through his people. Then that means that that missions efforts in areas outside of our immediate context cannot be ignored. The work and activity of God in the lives of those overseas and other nations cannot be ignored by his church. God desires all people groups to know the gospel of his kingdom, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this truth in Romans 10, Paul poses this question. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So we know this, right? And he says in verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The fact that there are over 7,000 people groups reported by the Joshua Project, unreached by the gospel, 
means that we have to discern just what part of the work we're going to participate in. I'm not saying this to make us all feel bad and guilt us into going, as if that's even really possible. But it needs to be something we care about and we should be praying about. If God has been working his will, his mission, from Genesis all the way through the history of Israel, then when the Messiah arrives, he doesn't flinch, he doesn't change direction, his eyes are on bringing all the nations in. So by the time that Jesus looks at his apostles and the rest of us, by extension, the church, and says, go, therefore, to all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then, and then make disciples of all nations. If, when he says that, it has to be something that we consider and we pray about and we care about. There are many organizations that we can read up on, participate with by donating. There are prayer calendars that are downloadable, making prayers, uh, making praying for many of the people groups really convenient because they break it out you know, by each month and they give you a section of the unreached people groups. Our missionary contacts that are overseas that need prayer and support from us through partnership with them we can join in God's mission there in that nation. And I give these as, as just some concrete examples because I can come up here and state facts to you all day long. Because what does that 7,000 plus people group number even mean to us, really? But when you're walking into an area where some of our teams have, where we know like no one from the West has really like, set, set foot on this place, and then we're like hiking through this, this jungle and, and we see these people dressed like nothing we've ever seen before. And we just see constantly people walking by, these, these young people, old people, and they've never heard of Jesus. They don't even know who he is. How can we, knowing that we've been commanded, not think about that? To partner in this way, to open up our eyes to the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world. That's the spirit of our missions trip this year. Look, we had our first uh, missions committee meeting last week, and I was grateful to see so many of you guys there. And we, <clears throat> we talked about this, though. We talked about if everyone is a goer, then there's, like, no one to send. Like, there's no one to, like, resource them and send them. Does that make sense? Like, I'm saying, like, yeah, we should go and join this. It doesn't mean, like, everyone needs to go, because if everyone goes, there's no one to send. Who's going to resource the ones that are actually going? Who's going to support? And who's going to receive us back when we return? And we talked about that in the context of our mission specifically, but it also applies on a larger scale. Not every church has the resources to pe- put people out there into those remote places. Some churches have like these actually like, like missionary training programs. We don't have that. But we can partner with those churches and go together we can resource some of those churches that we know are, are doing good work and we can give some of our resources to them. We talked about at that meeting how, um, I'm just speaking about Indonesia because I just know that area well, but one U.S. dollar is like 14 or 15,000 rupiah there. That's their currency. But 15,000 rupiah can buy like five or six skewers of, of chicken and like a ball of rice with, with peanut sauce. Like, so for like $1.10, you can buy a meal for, for somebody. So off of $8, like 
we can live each day, no problem, and then we have money left over to give to offering. Like, what kind of world is that? And so we have so much more resources here, and so we can help resource them over there. The idea that missionary, like what is a missionary? Okay, I'm going to just put it up here. Missionary is defined as, as someone who intentionally crosses boundaries for the purpose of, and there are five things, and this might not be uh, an exhaustive list, but this is just to get us started. Communicating the gospel to win people to Christ, okay? discipling new believers, planting churches, training biblically qualified leaders, ministering to the whole body of Christ. So this is what a missionary does. Okay? And it's not that they, they do this, do all five of these activities in equal amounts all the time. But for instance, what's really exciting is that, look, we're doing number three. This is a church plant. We started last July. Many of you are founding members here. But it is being able to see some of these activities in light of the grander what God is doing in the big picture it is being able to see that most of you at some level are participating in these things and really leaning into the understanding that you are part of something that God has been doing for thousands of years. That makes the difference. It's not just something that we're doing locally. This is something God has been doing since Genesis when he looked at Abram and said, look, in you, all nations will be blessed. We are, we are one of those nations that were blessed. And it doesn't end with us. We are to be a blessing so that by the time we arrive at, at Revelation 7, like we know we were a part of this. And we know that, that some of these people that were brought into this throne room to praise Jesus together were because of our collective efforts. Because if we see that bigger picture of what we're doing, because look, I mean, this, this stuff, discipling new believers, that could be you meeting somebody for, for, for coffee and like talking about spiritual things and, and really trying to like wrestle through things with them and praying with them. It could, talk, it could be like communicating the gospel, right? And then it doesn't say communicating gospel and winning people to Christ because that's not in your hands, but communicating it is. And so that could be you telling someone the gospel and them rejecting you. You're still participating in that and ministering to the whole body of Christ that's what many of you guys do in your service teams every Sunday the fact that we're able to to have church service like this is because of your service and you're ministering to the whole body of Christ and we'll get many more opportunities this year if you partner with us in going or sending or supporting to minister to the whole body of Christ but if you understand that these things that we do on a daily, weekly basis is part of a bigger picture that God has been rolling out and masterfully working in the background for thousands of years, then it, if, because then it's not about you. It's not about your ability or your lack of ability. It's not that at all. It's the bigger picture. It is something that God is accomplishing through you. In some sense, despite you at times. It becomes possible then for us to see the bigger picture of the mission of God and refocus our direction constantly as we come back and refocus on what he cares about, saving all nations, calling them to his throne. Are you sharing the gospel to win people to Christ? 
Is that on your, is that on your mind? How many people at your workplace know that you're a Christian? Just let these questions just kind of simmer and, and, and roll around in your head for a second. Have you thought through how you will make it known if they don't know? Because you can't just be like wearing a banner that says I'm a Christian or like wear retreat t-shirts. Like, I'm just like, is it possible for them to know? It's not that you're keeping it a secret. If, you, if someone asks you point blank, you'll say it. But are you working on ways to kind of shine the light? Have you prayed for opportunity to share, to deepen in those friendships with your coworkers, with your friends, classmates? Have you thought about what you actually do that might testify to the opposite of what you're supposed to be, Christ-likeness, that you're supposed to show? Is there anything that you do or, or, or say or participate in? Have you thought about how you represent? Have you thought of... Have you thought to bring your DG along with you or your group of Christian friends to pray for the people you're reaching out for or reaching out to? Have you invited these people out to church? Who cares if they say no? I think being in the U.S. and being in California specifically kind of creates these unique contexts for us to just spend a little bit of time thinking through because we're, we're like a, a mix of so many different like, people groups grouped in one place. Like, yes, we, we all speak English, and so we're all like of one, you know, native tongue, I guess. But, but we know that we're from all kinds of different places, not, not just the people here, but, you know, you walk down the street, and it's like there are people who actually don't speak English, right? Like, we're in like this weird kind of, like when, when missional sermons are preached, right, in the East Coast, it's like predominantly like one type of, ethnicity. But for us, we're like a giant mix, especially in our area. And so a significant part of our work in reaching out to all the nations can happen if we reach, or reach out to the ones around us. Or if we prayerfully try to help them, help make them strong disciples of Christ that will take the gospel to their home people group, to their families, when they go back on vacation, when they go vacationing to, with their friends, and then they can take the gospel back with them. <clears throat> Not only that, I don't know if you knew this, but in the U.S., some of these statistics are a little dated, okay? But I, I can't imagine collecting this. It would be so hard. But the U.S. has a reported 6% to 35% evangelical Christian. 6% of the U.S. population of 300 million estimated to 35%. That range is huge. And defining it evangelical, I mean, it's, it's that we have a conservative theology, that we say that we have to have a, a conversion between old life and new life, focus on biblical preaching, effortful gospel living out of the gospel, the cross of Jesus being significant. Like those are such loose standards in some sense to say that these are evangelical. But a group called the Barna Group, which is a, a Christian-led research organization, says that 8% of the U.S. are born again according to their inventory. And I just, as an example, kind of put, put it up there for you to look at. Okay, these are the questions they ask. 
And <clears throat> I'm just going to read it one by one. And if you say yes to all these questions, they mark you as, yes, you're a born-again Christian. Okay? Have you made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that is still important in your life today? Yes. Do you believe that when you die, you will go to heaven because you have confessed your sins and have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Yes. Is your faith very important in your life today? Yes. Do you have a personal responsibility to share your religious beliefs about Christ with non-Christians? Yes. Does Satan exist? Yes. Is eternal salvation possible only through grace, not works? Yes. Did Jesus Christ live a sinful, sinless life on earth? Excuse me. Yes. Whoa. And is the Bible accurate in all that it teaches? Yes. Is God the all-knowing, all-powerful, perfect deity who created the universe and still rules it today? Yes. If you pass through the filter of all of these questions, then they mark you as born-again believer. And then it's that, that's 8%. I mean, there's clearly a lot of work to do around here, is what I'm trying to say. Maybe, maybe these stats are off. I mean, maybe they're off by a few million, but like, you get what I'm saying? Like, there's so much here. And I get that the U.S. is marked reached, but the numbers can be misleading. Like, just think about the communities that you're a part of, your friend circles that are not church-based. How many of those people, like, would say yes to even three or four of these questions? If not, then have we done anything to be a part of that process to get them to see, get them to understand? Do we share with them? When Jesus said that you need to go and make disciples of all nations, right? At the end of that, he says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, okay? And this is a part of the equation that, honestly, I think it takes a lot of time to cultivate in people. It takes a lot of time to cultivate it in my life, personally. We are doing work here, like the teaching people to observe all that Jesus has commanded. That kind of work is done, at least for us, on our church, in our DGs. During discussion, as we you know, pray for each other, as we confess to things that we've disobeyed Jesus in, or things that we're chasing and, and try to obey Jesus more in, we try to figure it out together. And then we meet with other believers and, and try to, yeah, to try to obey Jesus more. Like that's something that we're all kind of working on, right? But we do also have to take into consideration the actual going part of it. Like no one is arguing with you that discipleship takes a long time, but if we don't go, then disciples will never be made there. At least not by our hands. Not everyone can go, but everyone that's part of a church can pray, volunteer, give generously, and be involved in what the other members of the church are doing. At this local church and other churches too. Establishing the kingdom of God or the rulership of God in every nation is God's mission. Okay? Everything that we do in trying to accomplish that is what we call missions, missions efforts. All nations to be brought to repentance from their sins and placing faith in Jesus, like 
That's what we're aiming toward. To zoom out just for a second and, and just see the weight of what God has been doing for thousands of years. Like I started out with that story, man. When he, when he told me that story, I was blown away. And some of us actually, you know, we've, we've met this missionary together. And he's shown us pictures of that chief who killed a guy. And he's like holding hands with like a different inmate because he like knows Jesus now and he's like a softie. It's weird, you know, but lives are changed. And like, who would have thought that 50 years ago, I, I heard, and I think at this point, I'm not sure how accurate um, this stuff is, but he was like 18 when he got married and he, he went off with his wife to missions. And he stepped into this village after hours of hiking and they turned him away. I think they tried for weeks. And then they just kind of, you know, continued the work nearby. And then 50 years later, he's like, oh yeah, the chief's like, yeah, come on in. I'm going to introduce you to everybody. Like, can I be a part of something like that? I know it's not that we're all chasing these sensational stories, but just think about it. Like, if you're individually trying to accomplish something versus an entire church trying to accomplish something versus God and all of his followers trying to accomplish something. And added unto that, he gave us the certainty that it's true because the vision in Revelation shows us that every people group has representation in that throne room. So what are we going to do? I thought this week, how odd is it uh, to see a bunch of believers like working together for the same cause? Because it's like so mundane sometimes, like the type of activities we do. Like to come up here and say like it's a missional effort when you're like cutting up food and prepping for like people to eat at a missions dinner. Like it's hard to say like that's like thousands of years of work. I'm cutting, you know, like it, it's just hard to like connect those two things. But man, I think the Bible is saying that it's true. These little things add up. As long as you're, you're pointed in the right direction, you're trying to aim everything and anything you do to, to fulfill this mission that God is trying to, and he will fulfill. It says in Proverbs 16 that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Everyone kind of like, or some people have this on coffee mugs and stuff, you know, like it's like a pretty popular verse. But I just think like, by ourselves, our church alone can't do it. But with God and the momentum of thousands of years of masterful planning, precise execution, and perfect wisdom, as long as we join in his mission, yeah, he establishes the steps. We might not get it, but we know what he stands for is true. We know at the end of it, that we took part in something that Revelation 7 reveals, it will be true of all nations, bowing down to the one true king, Jesus. And that's what it's about. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray together. God, I, I believe it is impossible for, for people to be able to step out of their, their own comfort, step out of their shoes for a moment and, and see a, a grander picture of what you're accomplishing. It's impossible for us without your Holy Spirit just guiding us and leading us in that direction. Honestly, I'm not sure what to expect when addressing a church 
that is filled with your Holy Spirit. What amazing stories and testimonies we'll bring back. Not for the sake of how much glory or, or I guess, popularity or whatever, attention it brings us, but just to know that, that we're participating in something you've been working and, and willing and, and pouring out all of yourself to, to accomplish. God, you stepped into humanity in the flesh and died on a cross. Not so that we could just be comfortable or to have a deep spirituality with you, but to then send us out and, and wage war against the enemy that holds souls captive away from the throne room of your grace. So would your people here at Savior Community Church, and would we, would we catch hold of that, that mission that you have, that you will accomplish, and would you just bring us along and show us what we can do to be a part of that? To know that, God, you're not almighty here or just here, but you're almighty all across the globe and beyond. Let the heavens obey your word. And so, God, would you empower and would you move in us to be more missional, to be representing Jesus better in our workplaces and in our friendships and in our own personal relationships and just everything? Would it just be marked with a de desire to fulfill that mission, to bring in more and more peoples from all nations and to exalt you at your throne? And would that amount to your glory? Please do that work in us. Little by little, God, would we see more of you and less of us. Please, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.